Today, we're going to try and do quite a lot in quite a short space of time, as you can see. We're going to cover the key developments in COVID-19. We're going to look at quarantine and shielding. We're going to look at the question of labour and the job retention scheme, the latest on business support and detail from the devolved administrations. Then we'll do a handbrake turn into debt with Brexit and look at the latest developments there. What's likely to be next, and uh, Jane Armand will join us for the first time. Uh, we'll be looking at trade issues and Luke will be joining us. Then we'll take a look at food safety and science, a brief look at immigration, and then we'll take your question. So since our last webinar, which was more than a week ago, we've seen, some, we've seen the quarantine details uh, announced, a lot of controversy, still a big debate within the government and the governing party about whether the uh, quarantine is a sensible use of government resources and a sensible way to proceed. I might come back to my views on the likelihood of it surviving a bit later. Uh, and then we've also seen details on how the Welsh government uh, will uh, approach the question of track and trace. So we now have, I think, four different track and trace processes going on in the UK one for each of the devolved uh, administrations and one for uh, the UK itself, but basically for use in England. Alok Sharma, of course, was tested for COVID-19, was clearly very poorly, but in fact tested negative, and the restrictions on quarantine have came, come into force. We've seen that a continued series of announcements on schools, and it's now clear, pretty clear that uh, the not all school pupils, in fact, many school pupils will not return to school before the uh, before the summer holidays end in August or September, depending on where you are. Uh, yesterday was the last day for furloughing employees if they're to take advantage of part time furlough from the 1st of July. And uh, yesterday we also heard that uh, those who need to shield will learn uh, their, the, the likelihood of the next um, set of government guidance to, uh, before the 30th of June. Um, we might say something more about shielding. I think Kate's going to say something more about shielding. Just a couple of quick things. Uh, first of all, on quarantine, obviously, uh, that policy has now come into effect. It started on Monday, um, whereby arrivals into the UK as a UK-wide policy have to self-isolate for 14 days. Uh, there is a passenger locator form which people have to fill in and you can do that from 48 hours before. In terms of exemptions, there are differing exemptions depending on, uh, sorry, differing requirements depending which exemption uh, you have. But for the ones that probably most relevant here around technical staff within manufacturing, it has now been confirmed they do still have to complete that passenger locator form. That was a there was varying guidance on that, I think it's fair to say, last week, but that has been confirmed. Um, and basically what they need to do is set out below, which is a, um, a letter from the company outlining those details. It is uh, also suggested that if they have photo ID from their company, that uh, they also are able to produce that at the border. And there should also be within that letter um, an explanation of why their travel is essential, so really what it is they're going to be doing. And then just again, quite quickly moving on to um, shielding. The shielded patient list is until currently until the 30th of June in England. Um, the reason I just wanted to touch on this is there was a little bit of uncertainty uh, last week, towards the end of last week, whereby um, when the policy originally came in, uh, it was to shield for 12 weeks. So if you happen to be registered with a GP who was really quite on it, you may have got your shielded letter with a date that is earlier than the 30th of June. And so it would actually be kind of coming up now for renewal. Uh, the government policy changed to be everyone is till the 30th of June. And as Ian has already said, we know that DHSC are going to be reviewing that from next week to look at what that time period, if that time period needs to be extended. The other thing to note is that Scotland has already said that it will be um, extending its shielded period until the end of July. So currently England and Scotland are running to different dates. 
Thank you, Kate. Uh, Tim here. So on allocation of labour, uh, there is a new FDF partnership to tell you about, and that's with Gumtree, uh, which is a online and app-based platform. You may be familiar with it. Uh, it is UK-wide, and it specialises in non-office-based roles uh, for those earning under £25,000 a year. It's, it is well established with a, a range of blue chip clients, including co-op, so you see them all there. Uh, if you're interested in accessing our partnership with Gumtree, uh, contact us at fdf at gumtree.com, and you'll also be able to access the terms and conditions. Just a reminder that the, work, the slides will be on our website. Uh, for those of you who've been with us on the long journey, you'll be familiar with all of this. These are the other partnerships that we've established uh, in order to facilitate movement of labor, either people who need workers or people who have workers that can be redeployed. That's with the Association of Labour Providers, the Recruitment and Employment Confederation, SIFT, Sonic Jobs and PLACED. So again, uh, a whole wide range of opportunities for you through FDF uh, if you have issues about allocation of people. Uh, and then, as Ian uh, mentioned, on the furlough scheme, the CJRS, um, we're expecting uh, further details on flexible furloughing, which is kind of the next stage to be announced by the Treasury tomorrow. Uh, those of you who were on the webinar last week will have heard me talk about the, the tapering of, of the CJRS over the months until the end of October. So over that period, uh, June and July, it continues in the current format. And then between the end of July and the end of October, essentially employers are expected to pay more, a larger proportion of the cost of employment. But those who were furloughed by yesterday, as Ian said, 10th of June was the cutoff date, will be eligible for the new flexible furloughing scheme. We don't have all the details, but what we do know is that um, they will be able to bring them, uh, employers will be able to bring those people back on any reduced working pattern. So furlough will just cover the hours that they don't work below their usual hours, the hours not worked below the usual hours. There'll be no minimum furlough period. Uh, there had been reports that flexible furlough would, would simply be about a one day minimum period, but that we gather is not correct. Uh, and as I say, only for those who have already been furloughed as at yesterday. So uh, you can't access this if you haven't already furloughed people. And uh, with that, I'm going to hand over to Sarah to tell us about business support. There wasn't a huge amount of detail provided in the announcement, but what it did say is that government will provide £10 million uh, billion pounds backing for the trade credit insurance market via reinsurance scheme. So this requires businesses to buy cover from trade credit insurance as usual. So businesses don't actually need to apply for this scheme and insurers will then be able to buy cover from, for themselves from government. The scheme is available on a temporary basis for nine months um, and it will be backdated to April the 1st. This date was agreed as sort of part of a negotiation between industry and government, which fits around quarterly dates with April the 1st being the start of the second quarter. And then the scheme will then operate until the end of the year, although there is the possibility of an extension. So after the scheme has closed, the government has promised a review of the insurance market to ensure that it can operate smoothly in the future. Essentially, over the coming weeks, we would really like to hear from you on sort of what impact this has on the willingness of insurers to provide cover to suppliers. Um, I also just wanted to flag a paper um, led by the British Frozen Food Federation that FDF is supporting, which highlights the impact of COVID-19 on the wider food and drink manufacturing sector. Uh, this will be published next week and includes recommendations to ensure that the government intervention on trade credit insurance meets the needs of industry. And we have fed in FDF member views on this. Finally, on late payment support, uh, this is just a quick reminder that there is help available for small businesses facing issues with late payment through the Small Business Commissioner, whether that be general advice uh, for complaints against a firm regarding non-payment, or just generally for further information on the support they can provide. The contact details will be circulated this afternoon via our newsletter, so please look out for that. And as always, more than happy to answer any questions. Thanks, Sarah. Hi, everyone. It's uh, David Thompson from FDF Scotland here. The first is that uh, Douglas Ross, uh, the junior minister, uh, resigned last week, uh, a couple of weeks ago, sorry, over the Dominic Cummings issues. He's been replaced by Ian Stewart, uh, MP as uh, Deputy Minister in the Scotland office. I'm meeting him uh, virtually on Monday. 
Um, his constituency is Milton Keynes, which is, uh, um, at the last I, I knew, wasn't in Scotland, but perhaps the boundaries have been redrawn. Last week, also, the Scottish Government called for a two-year Brexit transition period, citing COVID-19 as a clear reason to delay. At the start of this week, many Scottish hotel groups started redundancy proceedings for large numbers of staff. And that prompted the Scottish Government through Fergus Ewing to announce a tentative date for hospitality restarting, with social distancing, of course, on the 15th of July in Scotland. Uh, and lastly, the Scottish Government has published the first figures for Test and Protect yesterday, uh, showing 681 people tested positive um, and a total of 741 people were traced and, and quarantined as a result. The final thing to say is that today the Scottish Government, uh, and this isn't on the slide, today the Scottish Government have postponed their promotion restriction bill, uh, which was due to tackle promotions and advertising for high-fat, salt and sugar foods. Uh, they have cited coronavirus as the reason for this, uh, saying that the economic impact is such that they can't actually do a proper economic impact assessment on the industry and on equalities for the bill. Uh, so they've had to remove it from their current legislative timetable. Um, and as you may know, that means that the next Scottish election in May 2021, uh, I'm sure we'll see this uh, return again. So that's everything from Scotland, and I'll pass over to Pete to talk about Wales. Um, in terms of Wales, well, the first thing that happened after the webinar was the schools will increase operation 29th of June. That had been a position that was quite a change for Welsh Government, but actually, as we've gone on since then, it's become under a bit of pressure. So I think when it comes to the next review, that might be something that uh, could be amended. What was a good positive step forward was the original guidance on the contract tracing did not include the measures implemented for PPE and protective screens. And, and we're delighted that the Welsh Government updated their guidance on the 4th of June after discussions between ourselves and others. There is one outstanding aspect about the personal PPE that you wear. You actually wear as a face screen that we're challenging at the moment. Travel quarantine, we're in line with the, the UK rules. And uh, then the Economic Resilience Fund, which was the second phase, was announced as being reopened at the end of June and the launch of an el eligibility checker. Effectively, the fund is the same structure. The only significant difference is that the non-VAT businesses are now included. Now, the Welsh Government is reviewing if there are further gaps in the provision, which there clearly are, and we are feeding them in through the appropriate channels. And then finally, it's just happened the other day, is around face covering. Um, rather than go into a specific face covering, it's a very loose, it's not considered mandatory, and the only guidance that's specifically given is around when it should be weared is around public transport. There's nothing else other than that. Thanks, Pete. Well, now back to Brexit. It seems like only yesterday we were talking about this, uh, but actually it's uh, more than three months. Uh, what I want to do now is bring you up to speed with the key developments on Brexit and then have a quick look about uh, what's likely to happen next, what's the timetable we're facing, and then Jane Armand will uh, take us through the political developments. So, as you will remember, at 11 o'clock, or 2300 hours, on the 31st of January, the UK left the EU to either cheering crowds or gnashing of teeth, depending on your particular uh, position. In early February, the UK, the government uh, published its objectives for the future relationship talks with the European Union, respecting the mutual sovereignty of both parties, and no regulatory alignment, and particularly no role for the European Court, a suite of arrangements, uh, including a comprehensive free trade agreement uh, covering all trade, a fisheries agreement, and uh, an internal security agreement backed up by a whole range of technical agreements, and cooperation in other areas that uh, did not need to be granted through an international treaty. In mid-March, the EU published a draft proposal on the relationship with the UK and translating the withdrawal agreement, the Northern Ireland Protocol, into legal text. Uh, then the next development, uh, about two months later, and actually only a few weeks ago, was the UK government finally uh, publishing the draft text it had on a free trade agreement on fisheries, on tran air transport, social security, civil aviation, energy, nuclear cooperation, law enforcement, and judicial cooperation, and a proposal on asylum-seeking children. Now, the interesting thing about this text was that it was actually a pretty clear indication of a government position 
that gave the lie to the notion that the government was really seeking what it describes in as, as an Australian style relationship with the EU, that is to say a no deal relationship, because this this text essentially was a request for Swiss Switzerland style access to the free market, but with Canadian style regulation and regulatory arrangements. So you have to read from this text that at least those who wrote it are very, very keen on the best deal possible with the minimum regulation. But there is a level of caring about the nature of the relationship that wouldn't be uh, wouldn't be um, commensurate or consistent with wanting a Australian style or no deal exit from the relationship. So that's, I think, an interesting point. And then on the 20th of May, the next day, the government published its approach to the Northern Ireland Protocol. This is the first time we've heard detailed commentary on the protocol. It's uh, concerning in many ways, but it does indicate that the government is taking the protocol seriously. Um, there is quite a lot of debate now, I think, on exactly what this means, but it does become clear that while Northern, the trade between the North and the South in Ireland and the trade between the North of Ireland and uh, Great Britain is relatively straightforward. The real concerns are about GB to NI trade and the difficulties that that may involve. And most importantly for business, the costs, uh, both in time and money, that that may begin to invoke. And with that, the viability of doing some of that business comes into question. So that will be a central subject for debate going forward. Then on the 2nd of June, the fourth round of Brexit talks uh, began, and we'll hear in a second that they finished without much of a conclusion, seemingly little progress. And there you see a couple of quotes. M Michel Barnier, we cannot con continue like this forever. Well, Michel, that's all, all experience to the contrary, because it looks to me like that's exactly how it's been for the last three years. And David Frost, the usual UK response about we must intensify our effort. I think it's fair to say that these talks will not move forward without some external stimulus. And we'll come to that in a minute. But at some point in the next couple of weeks, the prime minister is going to meet with the, uh, with the president of the European Commission and possibly with uh, Chancellor Merkel. And it'll be those sorts of contacts which actually either drive the, drive the talks forward or provoke the EU into giving Barnier a different mandate or signal the breakdown of the talks. On the 9th of June, um, we should also note that the UK launched uh, the UK-Japan FTA discussions. We knew before that there was an FTA discussion going on with the US. And uh, it's also the case that Penny Mordaunt one of the more outspoken cabinet ministers, uh, just outside the cabinet ministers, of course, former defence secretary, told the House of Commons that there would be no point in an 11th hour trade deal. Uh, she also, I think, brought into question the question of quarantine, but that probably wasn't quite what was expected. A whole series of dates have become quite important. Uh, first of all, the um, Joint Committee on the Withdrawal Agreement, that's the uh, that meets on the 12th of June. The Council, the European Council meets on the 18th of June. It's thought that there might be some kind of uh, out, outcome from that, possibly a new mandate for Barnier. Um, then there is the conversation scheduled for late June between Boris Johnson and Ursula von der Leyen, which is thought to be pretty crucial to this, although I've heard some uh, speculation that that conversation might, or a conversation of that kind, might take place this weekend. German presidency, Frau Merkel takes up the presidency of the European Union uh, on the 1st of July. And her main priority is expected to be the EU budget. And that is expected to mean that, that, that the approach of the EU is that talks can't really become substantive again until the autumn, while, whereas the Brits want the talks to really crack on through the summer. Uh, I think most people I've talked to about this say that it's just not practical for the EU to give its full attention to the uh, to the UK until the budget has been uh, set. And that rather suggests that the Council on the 15th, 16th of October is actually uh, what the late Huey Green would have called make your mind up time for both parties. That looks like being the cathartic moment in all of this. And then, of course, on the 31st of December, the transition period ends. We 
will revert to trading with the EU on WTO terms if there's no deal secured and no extension of any kind has been agreed. Um, and the Northern Ireland Protocol comes into force on the 1st of January, as does a, uh, 2021, as does a new immigration system. So lots of change. And as, a, as our colleague Andrew Kike from the Provision Trade Federation made a point this afternoon on an earlier call, uh, whatever happens, the relationship between the UK and the EU and the institutions that will govern it going forward come into place at the end of this year. And they are very different from those that were previously expected to be used in um, to be used in any no deal situation and with that let me hand over to jane armand here are some political considerations from us that you might want to bear in mind as ian has said time is short um the uk insists that it will not be asking for an extension again we've seen penny mordant say this um just again in the last 24 hours they will not ask for an extension to the transition period while anything is possible um, where EU FTA negotiations are concerned, it's certainly going to re require a lot of political will and a lot of um, confidence on both sides if they're to reinvigorate the talks. We believe that negotiations will continue over the summer. Um, as Ian referred to in the previous slide, it won't be immediate. There are far more pressing concerns, not least the EU budget that EU leaders want to crack on with, um, but hopefully by autumn we will see some headway on some of the critical issues where the talks are currently stuck. The UK rhetoric is going to continue to rise, the pressure is increasing, we've seen Michel Barnier for the EU side um, talk a little tougher today not least on rules of origin and in terms of the political rhetoric we can also expect to see the Welsh and the British government continue to put pressure on the UK ministers. Our best assumption is that there will be a deal. It's far too important for the economies of both the EU and the UK to not have a deal, but clearly there are huge issues that need to be sorted and that will need a lot of goodwill on both sides. And bearing in mind the limited time available for the trade talks, it's not likely to be much more than we might have seen on WTO terms, with a lot of detail probably left for discussions to continue into January. And while we as FDF are not calling for an extension to the transition period right now, both sides will need to think about how they can take forward some side agreements or perhaps extend talks in some areas to provide both sides with the clarity that we'll need to continue trading. Um, so I'm just going to cover, uh, gonna cover three areas three on the UK-EU deal and the FTF priorities from that. Uh, trade at the end of the transition and the NI protocol. On our priorities, we've set out five key priorities on what we need from a UK-EU trade deal to keep trade flowing. We've used the basis of the text that the EU and the UK have proposed to form these and what we can do to build on those. So these are just the headlines, but in the paper that goes into these in a bit more detail, we've and look to address two challenges at the heart of each one, which is the cost of compliance and reducing friction at the border. So if we take um, two, so for on minimising certification and border frictions, what we're proposing is a mutual recognition agreement for SPS and a streamlined system for getting those export health certificates signed off. And to manage the border frictions, we'd ask for a first place of arrival, which effectively moves the checks and inspections away from the border um, to kind of to tackle both compliance and friction uh, but if you want that paper uh, do get in touch with us if we can share that with you firstly the uk has published its mfn tariff schedule for the end of the year uh, this is very different to the last no deal tariff schedule it published there's a lot more tariffs on product lines and it's close to the eu's mfn we do think this would pose significant challenges to supply chains in the event of a no deal and we will be making that case to government if we do go down that route, um, then we are awaiting the UK's border operating model, which is essentially how it will operate the UK's borders from the 1st of Jan. So if you cast your minds back to the 10th of Feb, where Michael Gove announced the UK will and, um, apply full import uh, third country checks on EU traffic, which effectively removed any waiver of export health certificates and junked the transitional simplified procedures system, which is a very different regime and policy change from the last approach they took under 2019 ahead of a no deal 
we are expecting this to come out um, in the next day or so or perhaps next week which will give us more detail on this but we have set out uh, 50 questions that need to be answered to help businesses prepare for that and we have a far more detailed list on that around how long each area would take to, to prepare for within businesses and as Jane mentioned earlier the UK has announced FTA talks with Japan and the USA so and on the Northern Ireland protocol so what we've used is we've read the actual draft or the withdrawal agreement protocol text and the government's plan for the Northern Ireland protocol and sketched out what we think trade will look like between GB and NI now what the protocol means is that the Northern Ireland will remain in effect of the EU single market and it will apply the EU's customs law now. Simple terms, what this means is if you're sending goods to NI, you will probably most likely need to do some sort of customs declaration and an export health certificate. Now we have some further clarity around how the customs processes will work, which is similar to the French model that they apply for Calais. Um, ahead of the last no deal in 2019 which traders will need to pre-enter all customs documentation the haulier then arrives at the port and gives a number then to check if you don't have the correct paperwork you're not getting on the boat however this system does sound like it's going to rely on the customs declaration service which does have a number of questions around its readiness as it's a brand new system moving away from chief and there is still a lot of unanswered questions around the SPS checks, how tariffs are applied from GB to NI and who has oversight on that protocol. Now, as you can see, there's quite a lot of questions remaining on how trade will take place, but we're hoping to get much more of a clearer picture over this on the next few weeks. And then we'll start to move into focus on what kind of facilitations we start asking for businesses that will need to make this work at the borders. So that's the trade update and I'll pass to my regulatory colleague. It's uh, Helen Monday here. Yeah, just one slide on the food safety side of things, which is really about the um, regulatory piece. As you would hope and expect, we are in continual engagement with DEFRA and FSA colleagues on these issues. What we're seeing, I, I suppose we could summarise is that a lot of the questions that we had coming from members on the kind of first approach to a potential no deal Brexit are the ones that we're seeing again. But actually, this isn't exactly the same scenario as before, because last time we had got assurances around periods of adjustment, as you might call it. And at this point, we don't know um, what those periods of adjustment might be. So that's something that we're looking for some, uh, some answers on. And the other piece as well is that, as we found last time around, um, DEFRA and FSA are quite cagey on clear positions on things because as far as they're concerned, until there is an agreement, they don't know within which parameters they, um, they're working. So that continues to be a, a bit of a blocker to getting um, clear input. Another thing that we're doing at the moment is, uh, is tracking the EU activities that will not complete until we have uh, finished the transition period. And this is important because our authorities are certainly looking at the way that they will do the, uh, the risk assessment and the risk management. And uh, they could be an early indicator of what regulatory divergences may occur once we have left. So that's something we're very actively looking to put together at the moment and do some um, risk assessments around. And finally, just to bring up and uh, restate this uh, need for clarification about the uh, Northern Ireland protocol. This is obviously a dynamic that wasn't in play last time because there wasn't a Northern Ireland protocol that had been shared in detail. And we're starting to get sight of some potential complications that we don't know if they're an issue yet, but we're certainly looking to get some answers. And those would be around things such as whether uh, a Northern Ireland food business address is, uh, is acceptable as an EU food business address when they are considered to be part of the, the, the EU system. Cu current DEFRA guidance on labelling changes make no mention of having a separate Northern Ireland address. So we're assuming that isn't the case, but we really need to get some clarification on that. And we don't want to panic people at this stage, but this is the sort of question that um, we are looking to get answers on as quickly as possible. And clearly there's quite a lot in the press again around the um, any US 
uh, UK deal and what that would mean for lowering of food standards and safety. Thank you, Alan. Uh, so just on immigration very quickly, uh, as was referenced earlier, the new immigration system comes into effect on the 1st of January. Come what may, a deal or no deal, uh, that will be the system. So the main route into the UK for work will be via the skilled worker route. The minimum threshold, uh, salary threshold for skilled workers uh, will be 25,600. We did manage to get that down from 30,000, you'll recall, but um, I know it's still an issue for some employers. Uh, however, there will be uh, exemptions or a, a different way of treating shortage occupations for which the minimum salary threshold will be 20,500. Uh, quite what a shortage occupation is, is not yet finalised. That is still up for grabs. The Migration Advisory Committee are consulting on that right now. We'd love it if you would help us by completing our survey on shortage occupations by Monday uh, so that we can make as uh, comprehensive as possible a uh, submission to MAC. Thank you, Tim, and thank you, everybody. Extraordinarily speedy tour d'horizon uh, through COVID-19 and the EU negotiations and our future relationship with the EU. Um, and now we're going to come to the opportunity for you to uh, uh, offer us your questions and your thoughts. Before we do so, I would just add one, one rider, one additional thought to something that we covered much earlier on shielding. One of the things that some of us on a call heard this morning, and I think I've said this before uh, on this webinar, that was that the industry should not expect, should not expect to see any changes on shielding anytime soon. And one pointer to how that might develop is that the uh, DEFRA program on parcels for the shielded, you remember the food parcels that are incidentally 4 million of them now having been uh, delivered, that that scheme has been extended into September. Uh, so I think you might assume that although there might be changes to the lists of those shielded, and there are certainly some uh, already some changes to their capacity to go outside, people who are shielded, their capacity to go outside. Um, the essential suggestion that they will still be kept uh, away from the workforce and away from the rest of the population seems to be fairly clear that they will not be uh, back in circulation before the beginning of the autumn. So I know for many employers, the shielded uh, group are now the largest driver of absence, and I think you have to assume that that is going to continue. Do the exemptions only, and this is about quarantine, I think, do the exemptions only apply to technical staff within manufacturing? How about purchasing? In the food and drink industry, I think, is the question. Well, as, as I understand it, and certainly um, this is where I get a bit pompous, certainly I was one of those who negotiated the extension, so my uh, understanding is that the the terms of the extension refer to essentially to crucial crucial it, i don't think the term national crucial na critical national infrastructure is used in relation to the exemption of food and drink workers but it is about maintenance of critical supply so if the purchasing activity is, can be said to be part of the maintenance of critical supply, it would be caught by the exemption. If it, if it, if it isn't, I don't think it would. Uh, um, Kate, I think in the, on the forms, as you said earlier, you have to simply assert that you are covered by one of the exemptions, don't you? The form, you would have to, in the letter, that, so, if you're going for the exemption, which is around maintaining uh, manufacturing production, if, if the role is essential for that, then in the letter, you have to have it from your company stating what, why you're essential, basically. There are a whole heap of extensions. So it might be if, if you don't feel that you're, you exactly fit that one, then I'd suggest you read through them because there's, there's probably, you know, there's more than there's 10, 15 or so, and they all have slightly different requirements. I, I would say, though, that if you are purchasing a, a, a crucial uh, ingredient or a crucial part of the food production process, and if your presence is critical, uh, your physical presence to do that purchasing is critical for some good reason, it seems to me that you would be covered by the spirit of the exemption which is designed to keep food flowing. And so if that was the reason, I would imagine that that would be, I would imagine that would be an acceptable reason. 
um, gives me a platform to offer a view, which is, I know, controversial. I can't myself see how the quarantine process can be continued in its current form beyond the 30th of June. As you may know, on the 30th of June, if this happens, and it, it does depend if this happens, the, the EU is intending to open all of its borders. Uh, so the quarantine between the island of Ireland, as in the Republic of Ireland, and the EU will cease, and it will be possible for EU citizens to move freely into the Republic of Ireland. In that eventuality, I can't myself see how it's possible without imposing new border controls either on the ferries or on or on air travel between the, the Republic and the UK or indeed Northern Ireland and the UK. I don't quite see how it's possible to stop people who are in who have come via the Republic of, La, of Ireland into Northern Ireland, where there of course is no border, through which there's no border, into the rest of into the great into Great Britain. Uh, it may be that there is an intention to check passports at uh, at the ferry ports and at the airports, but that is not something that is done at the moment. And I'm not entirely clear how that would be policed going forward. But uh, that is just a view. It isn't a government view. You will have seen that the debate on quarantine continues to be very lively. It's also clear that a number of cabinet ministers think that the quarantine is uh, misplaced. So and it is to be reviewed every three weeks. So but I don't think you can count on that view as a as a can't bank that. I think you have to proceed on the basis that it will continue. Just to say that the exact wording is around the production, supply, movement, manufacture, storage, or preservation of goods. So it's pretty wide. Yeah, um, and purchasing definitely comes into that list, doesn't it? I mean, it, it's the supply thing. So I think you would be, provided it is a legitimate reason for you to be there, as in going to purchase something that requires your physical presence. That seems to be okay to me. Thanks, Kate. Next question, Tim. Is there any additional guidance as to what would be deemed specialist technical skills or essential work? Well, uh, Kate, is, there is some more guidance on, is there more guidance on specialist technical skills, Kate? No, there isn't. And I think um, certainly previously we've kind of been on the view it's been, it's quite good not to request that that gets narrowed down further? I think uh, I think you're left to your own judgment of if it's specialist. Um, if it, I mean, I think the key thing here is if you cannot do your business and if the food will not flow or the ingredients will not flow or the equipment won't work or might not work uh, without either you going one way or them or other people coming this way, then the exemption is there for that purpose. It's entirely designed to ensure that the UK's food supply continues untrammeled uh, while the COVID crisis rages. It's from Tara Hewitt. Hi, Tara. Tara asks, uh, this is about one of the areas where we haven't yet managed to make a breakthrough. Do you think the government will reconsider the VAT exemption on COVID product donation? No, I don't. For reasons which I simply don't understand. The, the, the rejection from, which doesn't mean we won't try again, but the rejection from the Treasury was so complete and so dismissive that I think it's it's not. We'll have another go, but but I don't hold out really very much hope unless we get to see uh, the Chancellor in person when um, clearly I would attempt or the President would attempt to deploy our legendary persuasive skills and, and who could resist us. But um, I don't expect the Treasury to give way unless they give way on a similar concession for something else. And if they were to waive, I don't know, if they were to waive um, some tax issue in order to bring theatre back, for example, uh, then I think we would need a, com a current parallel that allowed us to go in and have another a go at it. But it was a very dismissive response. Very disappointing too, I should say. On rules of origin, is there any further clarification regarding rules of origin and country of origin labelling for food ingredients post-Brexit? The rules appear to apply to finished food products only. Is this correct? And she adds a rider to the question, with the exception of animals for food, of course. Uh, so on rules of origin, that's something that gets tied up within the negotiations. Um, it's a bit of a sticking point at the moment. So I think the UK's proposals are around diagonal accumulation, which means you can use EU and countries that the EU has an FTA agreement with in your product. But there doesn't seem to be any sign of a breakthrough, and yet we're unlikely to see any further progress um, until a deal is struck. Yeah, I think the answer uh, is pretty similar on the 
country of origin side as well. We're not expecting there to be any differences with the way that the UK does this to the EU. The EU um, seems to be get uh, certain countries within it seems to be getting more and more requirements around that, but we expect status quo for the for the UK. Is there any news on the Test and Trace app? Uh, I've read that it may be October before it's available. And also, do we have any member experience of, of employees actually being contacted by contact tracers? And are there any issues we're aware of? Well, uh, on the app, I can't give you a definitive answer. All I can say is that the, the working group of which FDF is a member uh, was expecting to be able to review the app last week uh, or some parts of the app last week. That didn't happen. There was a suggestion that it would meet this week. That hasn't happened as far as I know. And the earliest we expect to see it is next week. And there is a story I think I've seen on one of the news uh, providers that the Prime Minister is increasingly irritated by the failure to deliver the app. And I also think that there was some suggestion that, that the Scottish government, David may be able to uh, uh, add to this, that the Scottish government had ruled out now using the UK app because it wasn't uh, happy with the progress. On the question of stories about contact tracing, so the contact tracing process that is going on at the moment is one that uh, is entirely manually driven. Um, and today, the government has published figures that say that 8, 000, uh, in the week that began the 28th of May, 8,000 uh, people had been uh, had reported had been reported as having the virus. They tested positive for the virus, and as you know, the process is you test positive for the virus, your details are sent to the contract tracers, the tracers, contact tracers. Sorry. They're not contract tracers, although they are on contract. Um, the tracers then ring you or contact you and ask you a series of questions about with whom you've been in contact. Uh, those people who are deemed to have been within contact within the infectable, if that's entirely the wrong word, but who could have got the infection, could have uh, contracted the infection, uh, are then contacted and told to self-isolate for two weeks, 14 days. Now, uh, we have been complaining, and I think I mentioned this last week, we're very concerned about the question of the way in which the protocols, the questions are asked. We're very concerned that the contact tracers must ask the questions about a protected working environment. At the moment, that is defined particularly in terms of social distancing. So you are only within the zone of potentially catching or contracting the virus if you have been within less than one meter for more than one minute, less than one meter for more than one minute, or within less than two meters for 15 minutes. And if that two meters, if either of those have been uh, experienced while there is a perspex screen between you and the person next to you, then you are not deemed to have been potentially infected. And what we found was that there are a number of cases in which the uh, people being contacted had not been had not been asked the, the the people who had who had tested positive had not been asked if there were any elements of a protected working environment or social distancing they'd not been asked those questions that was a concern um, and we followed those up with the relevant authorities the second area that we've heard one case which I think was was not in England was where it was suggested that somebody had tested positive, but that the test had taken more than a week to come through. So when the person being, uh, and they'd self-isolated, when the person was contacted by the tracers, they obviously gave the name of a colleague who uh, had been in close contact with them. But the person who had been in contact with them uh, was told then to self-isolate for two weeks when it was abundantly clear that they could not that given that the incident had happened over a week earlier, a two-week period was inappropriate. Um, and there are quite a lot of wrinkles like that which are concerning. Um, but by the same token, I know of a number of cases, not very many, but a number of cases where contact tracers have been um, in touch with the, uh, with the industry. Now, um, as I say, the government's just published these figures which show that 8,000 people had been uh, had been uh, reported positive. They'd been contacted by the tracers. Twenty, uh, they had uh, named 31,000 contacts. So something like four people per 
positive test and the contact tracers had managed to uh, identify and contact 25,000 of those 31, 26,000 of those 31,000. So around three people per individual uh, have been contacted and have self-isolated. Those numbers are, I'm not sure those numbers are the ones I would have expected, but I'm not entirely sure what I would have expected. But it does seem that in the majority of those cases, and that was the week of the 28th of March, in the majority of those cases, uh, the tracing process has worked perfectly well. Um, what we don't know, of course, is how many of those people subsequently go on to uh, develop the virus. But that will be something I'm sure is being researched in the weeks to come. Final question today is from the great Ian Mace. And Ian asks, if an EU national meets the exemption and is working in one of our UK sites, but starts displaying symptoms, can we get them tested? They won't be our employee. Why won't they be? I'm, I'm not clear I understand why they wouldn't be. An EU national is working in one, oh, because they're a contractor. Uh, Consultant or contractor, I expect. Kate, I think you can get them tested, can't you? Yeah, I think you'd be able to get them tested. It's, it's not like work capacity for testing, and it's effectively for the whole population now. It's not limited to key workers anyway. So, yeah, I don't think that would be a problem. I think you could not, I mean, I think you could get them tested, Ian, and I, I, would, I would think that the, in fact, the whole import of the system would be that we should get them tested, uh, because we'd want to know who'd been in touch with the, who'd had the virus and who had who had um, uh, who had been who they'd been in touch with? So yes, I think I mean I think one would want would one one would want and indeed would need to, for safety for that person to be tested. So uh, a lot of information there. We've got through an enormous amount in the hour we've been with you. Uh, I hope it's been useful uh, on COVID nineteen. Clearly, the um, the balance of activity is shifting towards the restart. Um, we're going to hear a lot more about the restart in the weeks to come, in the, in the days to come. Um, I think we may hear, uh, I think there are a number of things we may hear, and I'll just cover those if I may for one more minute. I expect us to hear a lot of debate over the week, to in the week to come, about social distancing and one metre. The pressure is heavily on the government now to move from two to one metre. Uh, as I've said before on this call, it quadruples the number of people who can go to a pub, a bar, a restaurant, or indeed in schools, can go to school or can be on public transport. And in each case, that 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 ex expansion of the numbers is critical either to the economic viability of the commercial establishment or to the impact of using schools and public transport. So pretty critical, although the scientists are clearly resisting and it'll be interesting. It's quite a test actually of, of the government's uh, view on this as to whether the whether the Chancellor or the Health Secretary wins this particular argument uh, or indeed perhaps more relevantly when the Chancellor wins this particular argument. But that will have a big impact on production or potential for production in food and drink because clearly if um, if hospitality comes back and we know that as other workplaces, shops, factories, other places are opening up, we know that food to go and contract catering that serves the workplace will come back. And I think we might assume that by the middle of the summer, those two areas are back at about 65, 70 percent of capacity. But clearly hospitality isn't going to be back unless those changes are made. And when it does come back, it can only operate, I understand, at 70% even with one, 70% of capacity, even with one metre social distancing. Nevertheless, that will mean a change in the production for food manufacturers, because we will then be serving all of our original markets, and that may mean changes in factories. So the question that we've been asked a lot, and I thought would come up today, is if there's a move to two metre, from two metre to one metre social distancing, is it expected? that factories would move to one metre as well. And the answer to that is we don't yet know. We've been very clear with government that we need plenty of notice of the change in terms of the ability of factories and workplaces to consider what they would do. There's clearly a bit, and, and I'm slightly ambivalent on this issue, having talked to many of our members. Clearly, there is a big element of confidence that has driven 
the remarkable levels of attendance at work and the low levels of absence over the past 12 weeks. And a lot of that confidence has been established with the working arrangements, the social distancing, the protective measures, all the changes we've made in workplaces. And if that confidence is to be continued, then changing any of those provisions, it has to be done very carefully and only, only when it is clear that it will not have a deleterious impact on attendance or on people's perception of their own safety. And will have to be done, I suspect, in concert with workforce, with representatives and with trade unions as well. So the move from one metre to one metre from two metres for factories is one that we will have to consider. And it is also clearly a big logistical task because you've got to take screens down, move them, you've got to change the way shifts work, you've got to change the teams. So it's not a trivial move and I'm not sure it's one that any factory would want to make without the confidence that there was never going to be a move back in the other direction because that would be extremely costly and terribly disruptive. So the one metre thing is not, uh, not in fact a gimme in terms of our members, though it is clearly critical to the viability of the hospitality industry and as a massive and much valued customer and partner in business, it's something we have a stake in on the other side of the equation. And so I would say that that is going to come up this week. I think quarantine arrangements may not change this week, but I think there's going to be a lot of debate about that. Um, and I think we will also hear a lot more about track and trace. On the Brexit side, I think you can see that we're poised at a moment of importance. The next two or three weeks, maybe towards the end of June, we will see those discussions between the Prime Minister and the President of the Commission and the Prime Minister and Frau Merkel. And those two uh, conversations are going to be critical as to whether there is a further negotiation, as Jane said, going on through the summer, but probably not concluding until the autumn, or whether there is a collapse in the talks and whether we then have to add to our COVID burdens uh, a massive uh, amount of preparation for, for a different kind of no deal. And I know ministers seem to think a little bit that because we've got through the COVID crisis and because we were prepared for no deal, that we, we have a head start on preparing for a, a no FTA arrangement on the 31st of January, uh, 31st of December. And I think it's different. And I think it involves a lot of work. And I think we've got a big job to try and explain that to them over, uh, even more clearly over the next few weeks. But you can be assured that we're on the case and that we're continuing to try and do all of these things at the same time. Uh, and it's no bigger challenge than the ones that all of you are facing every day in your workplaces. So we continue to try and represent you in the best way we can. Please keep your questions flowing. Please let us know if there's anything we can do for you. Please keep us informed about what you're hearing about Track and Trace and any of the other matters we've covered today. I hope we've answered as many of your questions as we can. I hope you found this useful. Tell us what you think. Let us know if you want the band to come back together again next week. Uh, otherwise, we will see you either in a week or in a fortnight, depending on developments. And we look forward to bringing you all of the answers again, whenever it will be. Thank you for joining us. Thanks a lot and have a good evening.